So this morning we're going to be carrying on in our journey through Second Peter. What I'd like to do this morning to start with is read through chapter 2 of Second Peter, uh, but from the Living Bible. Now, the Living Bible was actually the first Bible I read through uh, when I was about 13 years old. It's a paraphrase, and it's it's openly you know stated as such. So it's somebody's uh, view or opinion of uh, what they think the Bible is saying. So it's, it's in a sense, it's like a good commentary, uh, and that's the way we need to understand it. As indeed, uh, if we take many of the modern translations today uh, and you treat them as a commentary, well, then you're on pretty safe ground. We need to be a little bit cautious of taking modern versions and thinking that they are the Bible because it says Bible on the front, um, because many versions today um, are either the the thoughts of the translators or what they sometimes refer to as a dynamic equivalence version, which is um, sometimes it can be great if they get the, the themes and the ideas right. Um, but if they don't get it quite right, then sometimes it can be misleading. And, you know, there's, there's obviously other challenges surrounding modern versions. But um, this particular Bible, I'm not suggesting everything Kenneth Taylor put here is correct, but it's just a good overview of this chapter. So I'll just read this through. Follow it in your Bibles if you can uh, as we go through it. Uh, and then we're going to go back down and we're going to pick up in a minute from verse 10, which is where we got to last week. So let's just jump into the text. But there were false prophets, too, in those days, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly tell their lies about God turning against even their master who brought them. But theirs will be a swift and terrible end. Many will follow their evil teaching. There is nothing wrong, uh, that there is nothing wrong with sexual sin. And because of them, Christ and his way will be scoffed at. These teachers, in their greed, will tell you anything to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction is on the way. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell, chained in gloomy caves and darkness until the judgment day. And he did not spare any of the people who lived in the ancient times before the flood, except Noah, the one man who spoke up for God and his family of seven. At that time, God completely destroyed the whole world of ungodly men with the vast flood. Later, he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into heaps of ashes and blotted them off the face of the earth, making them an example for all the ungodly in the future to look back upon and fear. But at the same time, the Lord rescued Lot out of Sodom, because he was a good man, sick of the terrible wickedness he saw everywhere around him day after day. So also the Lord can rescue you and me from the temptations that surround us, and continue to punish the ungodly until the day of final judgment comes. He is especially hard on those who follow their own evil, lustful thoughts, and those who are proud and willful, daring even to scoff at the glorious ones, without so much as trembling. Although the angels in heaven, who stand in the very presence of the Lord, and are far greater in power and strength than these false teachers, never speak out disrespectfully against these evil, mighty ones. But false teachers are fools, no better than animals. They do whatever they feel like, born only to be caught and killed. They laugh at the terrifying powers of the underworld, which they know so little about, and they will be destroyed, along with all the demons and powers of hell. That is the pay these teachers will have for their sin. For they live in evil pleasures day after day. They are a disgrace and a stain among you, 
deceiving you by living in foul sin on the side while they join your love feasts as though they were honest men. No women can escape their sinful stare. And of adultery, they never have enough. They make a game of luring unstable women. They train themselves to be greedy and are doomed and cursed. They have gone off the road and become lost like Balaam, the son of Beor, who fell in love with the money he could make by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey spoke to him with a human voice, scolding and rebuking him. These men are as useless as dried up springs of water, promising much and delivering nothing. They are as unstable as clouds driven by the storm winds. They are doomed to the eternal pits of darkness. They proudly boast about their sins and conquests, and using lust as their bait, they lure back into sin those who have just escaped from such wicked living. You aren't saved by being good, they say, so you might as well be bad. Do what you like, be free. But these very teachers who offer this freedom from law are themselves slaves to sin and destruction. For a man is a slave to whatever controls him. And when a person has escaped from the wicked ways of the world by learning about our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and then gets tangled up with the sin and becomes its slave again, he is worse off than he was before. It would be better if he had never known about Christ at all than to learn of him and afterwards turn his back on the holy commandments that were given to him. There is an old saying that a dog comes back to what he has vomited and a pig is washed only to come back and wallow in the mud again. That is the way it is with those who turn again to their sin. Okay, so that's a paraphrase of the portion we're going to be looking at now. Just to give us a a, a running start into what we're going to look at this morning, uh, Peter has already told us that we have obtained like precious faith. I love that word. We have obtained, you know, it's like we've, we've won something that we didn't have to work for. We've been given something that's a free gift. We've obtained this like precious faith and we're to grow in knowledge. In fact, five times in chapter one of second Peter, Peter uses that expression of knowledge that we're to grow in knowledge. We're to know we're not to be ignorant. And then, of course, we have these precious promises. The ladies are going to be looking at that more in detail this week in the ladies meeting. And so we can become like God in character. That's why we've been given those promises. It's so that we can have this confidence and this hope that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then, of course, Peter takes us through that that journey that we're on, that progression, that we have faith, that God has given to all men a measure of faith. And then that leads on to virtue, which leads on to knowledge and then temperance and then on to patience and on to godliness, on to brotherly kindness. And then, of course, to capital, we have love. But we're also told to be diligent and to let our life demonstrate that there has been a change. If we've been born again, our outward lives should reflect the inward, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we respond to things and the the outside, the way people perceive us. That should demonstrate what has gone on on the inside. Now, Peter writes to stir up our minds, to make us think about where we came from and where we are going to. Well, Peter then reminds us of the certainty of our faith. Now, bear in mind that he himself was an eyewitness and he uses this as a part of his testimony. But he says, in addition, we've got prophecy. We've got such a sure foundation. And then he says that we need to beware because there will be false prophets who will try to lead you astray. Many are going to get fooled by them uh, and they will seem very sincere 
but they will undermine the truth of God's word and those who hold to it. But God is going to bring judgment upon them, just as he did upon the angels that sinned. This is the message that we saw coming out last time. So Peter now draws a parallel between the fallen angels, which again, we're told in Revelation 12, that a third of the angels rebelled against God, seemingly as God had completed, or was completing his work of creation. Uh, Satan uh, thought that this world, this earth was going to be given to him. And then suddenly God creates man and this whole wonderful world is given over to mankind to rule. And Satan is... Uh, bitterly disappointed and sets about trying to usurp man to gain title to the world himself and of course to a degree he's successful because we're told in second corinthians that for now he is the god of this world he got what he wanted he does for now hold the the keys of this world as it were of course that's going to be wrested away from him jesus will come and uh, take back um, that which adam lost the book of Ruth is an incredible model of that uh, whole um, scenario all played out. Genesis 6, of course, tells us about these angels. Some of those angels that rebelled uh, with Satan, uh, they kind of took a step further and they then left their, their first estate, as uh, Jude puts it. Uh, and they came and they took the women of the earth and, then, of course, those offspring were born to them which become known as giants. The word Hebrew word, as we looked at last time, Nafal, they are the fallen ones. Uh, and of course, um, this parallel that Peter's drawing now between that group, these false, these fallen angels, and then the false prophets. Now, it might seem like a strange comparison, but you'll see as he builds on this. And we go into verse 10, which is where we left off last time. And Peter says, but chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. So this is our starting point from what we saw last time. We, we have this comparison that those angelic beings uh, fell prey to lust. Okay, And they also had this uh, rejection. They despised government. And what Peter's saying is that these false prophets that are going to come, these false teachers that will exist within the church, bear in mind that the context of this is among you. Okay, This is what Peter said. They are going to be led by the flesh, just as these angelic uh, beings were. That they're also going to despise government, which as we've already seen this morning in the, the verse of, of the week that Nick shared with us, very clearly scripture tells us that we should have respect for government, that we should uh, accept the laws of the land in which we live. Of course, as Nick quite rightly said, unless they are telling us to worship a God that is not the God of, of the Bible, um, that's the only time we can step away from those those uh, dictates. But otherwise, we are to submit to the authorities. And Peter's already addressed this uh, in the things he's already written. Now, looking at this, the word we have there, uncleanness, it just has this idea of morally contaminated. Uh, it's not just in terms of actions, but in thoughts, in terms of uh, the way they conduct themselves. They have no moral values. They've lost their moral compass. Uh, no longer do they have a standard which directs, governs and, and guards them. Uh, little or no moral values. Another way we could um, term this, and Paul uses this expression, is headstrong. Uh, literally self-serving with, with no regard to consequence. And again, we're told here they then despise governments. And I think this is interesting, particularly in the days in which we live. I think it's uh, quite fascinating, actually, to look at the way we've seen uh, people 
uh, a change to a degree during this whole pandemic period that we've gone through. Uh, and I mean, the world, we, we can't account for the world and we don't have to justify or explain the world. But the church, well, the church has got some very clearly defined standards and we've just alluded to some of those things. I found it very interesting how many within the so-called church have come out very vehemently opposed to government rules and, and legislation and laws and so on, and particularly even this whole business of lockdown and so on. Um, it's concerned me to see the number of Christian posts and articles and things and emails that I've received from various things I've you know, signed up to um, that are saying, oh, you know, we've got to challenge this. And now, now it's OK to challenge something that we don't agree with. And absolutely, you know, we have uh, roots to do that in our democracy and so on. But when we start uh, actively defying the things the government has said, we move onto a very shaky ground and we move away from a biblical foundation. Um, I've had emails through and even this week saying that we need to uh, challenge the government because they are stopping us worshipping. No, they're not. The government aren't stopping us worshipping at all. You know, and it's it's a, a, an incredible statement, given the fact that um, so often when we talk about worship, uh, and I've made these comments myself, you know, the worship is not the music. We use music so often as a vehicle to enable us to worship the Lord. And of course, music is a wonderful thing. The children this morning are studying <laughs> and I hadn't thought about it right up until this moment, but they're studying this portion uh in first samuel eighteen nineteen, and we see there david using worship using this music to glorify god as a way of bringing people closer to god as a way of um ridding our heart and mind of worldly thoughts uh and we, we see that in that context of what the children are actually looking at right now as they're studying those things you know and for us music is a great tool that god has given us it's a real gift uh that we have there's no other um created uh creature that worships, that is able to use music like we can. God has given human beings this incredible gift. The music is a wonderful thing, but music itself is not worship. It's simply a tool that we use. We can worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, wherever we are, in whatever context. We've been able to carry on worshipping, although distance as we are, although meeting online, we can still worship. So this suggestion that the government is trying to stop Christians worshipping is simply not true. You know, and a lot of the other things that have been claimed about the, the, the government are trying to stop churches meeting. No, they're not. You know, there's no restriction upon us meeting online as we're doing and having fellowship in the way that we're doing. I know it's not the way we would like to do it, but it's no more um, antagonistic towards churches or um, it's no persecution towards churches any more than it is to uh, to gyms, which are now going to have to shut again. Uh, and to other groups that meet together uh, and social clubs that can't meet. You know, we're not saying they're being persecuted, but all of a sudden there's this group within the Christian church that are saying that the government is is trying to stop churches meeting it's simply not true um, and, and I'd be, be very cautious about uh, um, joining petitions um, that are simply saying that you know that the government have got to allow us to meet together and things now you know there is a big question mark um, about the the whole basis of the government's the decisions they're making and how serious it really is COVID-19 and there's one school of thought that's saying that the government would be overly cautious and I'm sure you've seen these things there's another school of thought that's saying no we really 
have got to be careful. This really is very, very serious. But truthfully, we're probably not going to find the truth of all of those things. Uh, and we'll probably, even amongst ourselves, we may have divided opinions, and that's fine. Um, but we're seeing what's going on in other countries, particularly in Europe and around the world. There is a problem. We have to be aware of this. We have to be very cautious. And look, the bottom line is the scripture gives us our guidelines in terms of how we should act and respond toward government. What we're told here in this scripture again is that there will be those within the church that are going to encourage us because they have no moral compass to despise governments, to, to reject the government, governmental authority. Now it goes on and says that, um, these individuals are presumptuous. Well, we're seeing an awful lot of that at the moment, aren't we? Um, you know, it's daring, audacious, um, unconcerned of the consequences once again. Uh, and we're seeing an awful lot of that in these days. And of course, it's not just the COVID thing that's led to this. There's many other, uh, things that we're seeing going on. And not just this year, but prior to that. Um, but I do think all of these things indicate the times in which we're living and the seeing the responses is very interesting. We're told that these individuals are self-willed. It's literally self-pleasing. They're arrogant. They don't care about other people. They're just doing what they're doing for their own gratification, their own pleasure. They like the position and so on. We'll see that amplified uh, in a little bit. Uh, and again, they don't just despise government. They openly speak against authority notice what it says and they are not afraid to speak of dignities now a number of the translations we have of this um, imply this is speaking evil of angelic beings now if you look at the greek word behind this i don't think that really fits it doesn't mean it doesn't apply but i think it's just speaking of governmental authority or any authority that is over you in any way shape or form even down to a family level, the way that children are able to speak uh, evil of their parents these days uh, and is seen as being an acceptable thing. Uh, and sadly, even some of those ideas come through the school system uh, and so on. Um, you know, remember that Peter says that these people shall be among you. So we, we've got to expect to see this within the church. Now, that's where it becomes hard. Because where you have somebody else who claims to be a Christian making these statements, often the the temptation is, well, if they're a Christian and they're saying it's maybe that's where I should be. That's maybe what I should be thinking. Well, this is where we need discernment. We need to weigh everything that's being said, everything that we're being encouraged to, to go along with or to sign up with, whichever cause or creed uh, is being presented that is supposed to be a good thing. We need to be very careful. Um, some may be right, some may be godly, some may be of the Lord, but we need to be very cautious before we become, as Proverbs puts it repeatedly, before we become surety for a stranger. Don't go and back somebody until you know really what's behind it, what the motives are, what the intention is. Verse 11 carries on and says, whereas angels, now this is the comparison we're going to get, which are greater in power. Now, I just want to make a point here that it doesn't say angels are greater in position. Because actually, in Christ, we have been lifted and elevated above the positions of the angels had. In fact, back in Genesis, when God made Adam and Eve, they were given that position higher than the angels. They were put in that situation where they were the pinnacle of God's creation. No other being, being angelic or otherwise, was created in the image and the likeness of God. So man, when he was created, was in an incredibly unique position. 
the beginning of Hebrews, we find that, and uh, quoted from the Old Testament, that, that man has been made for a little while lower than the angels. And of course, Jesus himself was willing to, to come and to take that, that step, um, to become as a, a man, to become part of his creation. But we have for a while been made lower than the angels, but in Christ we are lifted above all things in Christ. And now we sit in, in these heavenly places. We've been given this position of authority. We're now counted as the sons of God. Now, that's not a, an expression that is given um, in the same way to angels. Angels are referred to as sons of God in the terms that they are a direct creation of God. But we've been counted as heirs with Jesus Christ. So we have been given a unique position in Jesus. So just in, in terms of the, the positioning that we have in Christ, we are above angels. But this verse is telling us that angels are greater in power. Well, that is certainly true. We, we only need to look at a few scriptures to see how powerful angels are. In Revelation, we see ordinary angels doing extraordinary type of things. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, of course, with the situation um, with uh, we're going to be getting there in our study through Isaiah soon when the Assyrian army comes against Jerusalem and uh, the 185,000 uh, troops of the army are wiped out in one night seemingly by one angel you know so angels are hugely powerful beings that God has entrusted this power to and the the, the idea here is that angels which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord in other words these angels that have a great understanding of their position and their power also have a great understanding of the respect they should show. And this is the, the lesson that's really being brought before us here. Now, Jude makes the same point, but gives us an incredible example to make his point. Let's look in Jude, Jude verse 8 and 10. It says, likewise, also these filthy dreamers, speaking of the same individuals, those that would come into the church and deceive and so on, uh, defile the flesh. Same things again. They despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. And then he says, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Just an interesting side thing there that, of course, we don't know exactly where Moses was buried. And there's been this kind of um, question about this. And so on. I don't want to derail the study for this, uh, for this morning. But, um, but obviously Michael was having this debate with the, the devil. Devil wanted to know where Moses' body was. Um, now maybe it's because if it had been found, it'd become a great shrine, a great place of worship for the Jews and that God wasn't going to allow that. There's a lot of different reasons we could maybe, um, suggest as to why this is the case. But Michael, we're told, did not bring against Satan a railing accusation. So this is Satan. This is the deceiver. This is the father of lies. And Michael himself doesn't poke fun at Satan or act in a derogatory way or say derogatory things to him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. See, even Michael in a position of the one person you would think is okay to, to speak in a derogatory manner toward. No, no, no. Even then there's this position and there's acceptance of authority and hierarchy and so on. I'm not suggesting that Satan is uh, higher than Michael in any regard whatsoever, but simply that there was that respect. And this is the message that Peter's saying. And he gives us this as the most bizarre of all examples. And then says, this is, uh, sorry, this is Jude saying this, sorry, uh, that the Lord rebuke you, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. And again, we have so many people that are, um, well, in, in many respects, largely swayed by the media. Uh, the media 
uh, we, we just see this kind of, uh, um, unbridled grab for power and authority as if the media say something, everybody should follow and go along with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I do feel that the media uh, should be taken to task far more than they are um, for the way that they speak to people in government, the way they speak to people in authority. Um, but so many people pick up on those things and they think that that's OK to do. And of course, within the church, that overflows as well. And Jude just simply says, you know, people are speaking evil of things they don't understand. And he gives us this example. So. Back into Peter, verse 12. But these as natural brute beasts, so just like animals, he says, made to be taken and destroyed. You know, they've, they've kind of, they've given up on this incredible position that they have. That, you know, we talked to a few weeks about, ago about the idea of uh, that we will be glorified. Now, that means that the idea of anything, the glory of anything, is that it fulfills its creative potential. Now, for us as human beings, our creative potential is to be like God, to be in that position where we've been transformed, where we've been uh, changed from the inside out, and that we become like him in our character and our attitudes and everything else, and that we flourish. Uh, That's how we should be. Jesus said that he came to give us life in abundance. That's the life that we should be living. But these individuals... Have, have totally rejected that calling in a sense or that opportunity to become something so special. Uh, and they've degraded themselves by the way, uh, that they, uh, are. Uh, again, so, um, so let me just read that verse, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not just same as Jude says, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Interesting. Um, the word riot doesn't have quite the same connotation as we think of, but isn't it interesting how we're seeing so many riots going on? Um, riots, though, it's interesting. The, the, it has the idea of um, emasculating people, um, taking away their credibility, which is quite interesting, um, the biblical, the Greek word there. Um, and it says, um, spots, they are and blemishes. I mean, Peter, not really holding back on his, uh, uh, graphic description here. It's just like a spot, they're like a blemish. They're, they're just unsightly. And then he says this, sporting themselves with their own deceivings. In other words, it's a game. They make fun of it. It's, it's a, it's something like a sport to them. With their own deceivings, while they feast with you. So these are people that will happily fellowship with us. Happily spend time and, and, you know, refer to God in the same kind of terms that we refer to God. And yet at the same time, um, there's all these other insidious things going on in their hearts and minds. And then he says, having eyes full of adultery. Now, I like the way the Living Bible translated this. And I've checked and a number of other um, uh, versions and commentaries kind of make the same point. The idea here is that they're looking upon women as as if they were just some sort of sexual um uh, thing that, that that's how it, and, and of course the world that we live in today hasn't it done exactly that uh you know the media advertising everything else you know i, I know there was this uh um, me too thing that you know going back a, a year or a couple of years back now um but you know the the media that we have the advertising industry it, it just tries to to sexualize everything uh, and it just just encourages people to have that kind of impression that that everybody's available. Uh, of course, this is so far removed from the love that should be the foundation of our lives as believers. 
Uh, he says, and that cannot cease from sin. It, it's interesting because he goes on, it says, beguiling unstable souls. Well, this is why we need to be stable. We need not to be blown around by every wind of doctrine. We should have that sure anchor for our souls. And it says, in a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, it says. Interestingly, exercised with covetous practices. That's not something that happens overnight. Is, is a practice to exercise is a, re, is a repeated continual thing. And they've come so accustomed to this, they've actually become good at it. Um, the uh, One of the commentators said this, uh, they lust after every girl they see. They view every female as a potential adulteress. That's the mindset of, of so many of these that are um, trying to, or within the church, trying to deceive, trying to encourage to go after whatever we like. And of course, uh, Peter, oh, sorry, Paul, makes the point speaking to timothy that there will come along in the last days teachers um who will say exactly what people want to hear well don't we see that when it comes to um uh, sexual excess and so on how many church leaders even the pope in recent weeks has made his comments about relationships and so on and i'm sure you're familiar with these things you know totally uh, in um, diametrically opposed to the teaching of scripture notice again though it's the unstable souls without an anchor that are going to be deceived here and of course they are the offspring it says here of cursed children they're the offspring of the previous liberal generations you know we've seen this kind of liberal mindset being swept in uh, all around the world really uh, and of course there's been this undermining of the word of god and godly values but where has that come from well, largely that's come from within the church. It's not so much the world that has undermined the word of God. It's actually the church that has undermined the word of God. And they've allowed these practices and these ideas to be foisted upon our minds and hearts. Verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of uh, Besor or Beor, um, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, it speaks of this individual Balaam who simply looked at the possibility of making some cash. He had a great opportunity to make some money. This uh, king here, um, Balak, was very wealthy and was offering Balaam, this false prophet, the opportunity to make a lot of money by cursing Israel. Verse 16, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. I'm sure you know the account, of course, that um, Balaam's told not to go. But he kind of decides that he's going to go anyway. God then eventually says, well, OK, you go, but you only say the things I'm going to let you say. On the route, of course, there's an angel that's standing in the way. And, you know, the uh, the donkey swears off, uh, goes off the road and gets beaten the first time and so on. Eventually, you get to this pass where there's these rocks. He can't get either side. And so he kind of pushes Balaam's leg up against the rock. And Balaam's so cross that he starts beating this donkey. And God allows the donkey to speak. And uh, uh, it's, it's funny that uh, as the donkey speaks, the first thing that Balaam says in response is nay, um, which I find kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, we, we see this incredible rebuke from God through the mouth of the donkey for Balaam following after the, the, the lust of material things, the lust of success and position and wealth and so on. I just want to read you a quote from J. Vernon McGee. He said, did you know that there is more said in scripture about Balaam than there is about Mary, the mother of Jesus? There is more said about Balaam than about any of the apostles. The New Testament mentions him three times and each time it is in connection with apostasy. In 2 Peter, we are told about the way of Balaam. 
In Jude, we are told about the error of Balaam. And in Revelation, we are told about the doctrine of Balaam. He says again, uh, the doctrine of Balaam, Revelation 2.14, is different from the error of Balaam in Jude 11, uh, which revealed that Balaam thought that God would curse Israel because they were sinners. It is also different from the way of Balaam, the verse we're looking at now, which was covetousness. So just to give you that description, it's interesting to do a study on those three different things. But I just want to go back very quickly. It's been quite heavy this morning. I just want to just take you back and look at some uh, things to do with Balaam. We read in Numbers 23 that Balaam said unto Balak, build me here seven altars and prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken and Balak and Balaam offered on every altar a bullock and a ram. And Balaam said unto Balak, stand by the burnt offering and I will go. Peradventure the Lord will come to meet me and whatsoever he showeth me will I tell thee. And he went to a high place. High place typically was the, the the places they would have for worship. They were close to the stars, and at that time, of course, there was a lot of worship of the planets and the you know so on, astrology uh, and those ideas. It was really just a shrine for for pagan worship. <clears throat> but then we read verse four that God actually does meet with Balaam, and He said unto him, "I have prepared seven altars, and I've offered upon every altar." Uh, a bullock and a ram not that God was particularly impressed with that uh, and the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said return unto Balak and thus thou shalt speak and he returned unto him and lo he stood by his burnt sacrifice he and all the princes of Moab so that they're ready now the, the, the Balaam's now about to make this declaration and they're hoping that he's going to curse Israel and this is what we read and he took up his parable and said Balak the king of Moab hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east saying Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord has not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. That's the first prophecy. We're going to look at this in a second. To dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nations. Well, Adam Clark in his commentaries makes this point. He says, they shall ever be preserved as a distinct nation. This prophecy has been literally fulfilled through a period of 3,300 years to the present day. This is truly astonishing. This prophet who was trying to curse Israel ends up speaking as God gives him words. And the words he spoke, uh, just incredible prophecy of what would happen with the nation of Israel the statement that they would not be reckoned among the nations well Israel are the only member of the United Nations that are not permitted to chair the Security Council they're also the only democracy in the Middle East which is astonishing but they're not recognized on any Marab app now this is changing right now this is changing with what's going on in the Middle East which is why it's so interesting but the verse goes on, uh, verse 10, and says, uh, who, who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the, the fourth part or a quarter of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. So these are the words that Balaam is told to speak. So these are the next prophecy we see that Israel are going to be without number. Well, that was what was spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12. The third prophecy, that Israel's end will be in blessing. And again, this is exactly what we find through scripture. Now, you remember that there was that statement uh, that he saw him from the hills, from the mountains, looking down on Israel. Well, just as a, a very quick detour, I just want to just throw this in because I just it's been a kind of heavy morning with the things we've looked at. But this is just a, a wonderful little bit of design that we see in Scripture. 
Again, Balaam and Balak looking down on the camp of Israel. What would they have seen? Well, in Numbers 2, we're given details there um, of the camp of Israel. Now, we've made the point many times that every detail in the Bible is there by design. So what might be hidden behind the details of the camp of Israel? Now, if you read Numbers 2, it's not a particularly riveting storyline. You've just got a list of the members of the tribes and the numbers and so on. But of course, remember that in Psalm 40, verse 7 and echoed in Hebrews 10, verse 7, we read that the volume of the book is written of me, written of Jesus Christ. Everything in Scripture speaks of Jesus. So in Numbers 23, just again, just look at this verse. It says, from the top of the rocks, I see him and from the hills, I behold him. So I just want to just just focus on this for a second. So if we look at the way the camp was set up, this is what they'd have looked down upon. Around the center of the tabernacle would have been the Levites, the, the sons of Aaron. And of course, then Moses and the priests on the the uh, the side of the tribe of Judah uh, in the, the entrance to the tabernacle. So that's how the, the centre of the camp would have been arranged. And of course, you've got the, the, the kind of cardinal points of the compass going around that. And Moses and the priest, of course, on the east side, as you can see. Uh, that was the side of the tribe of Judah. Now, what we're told is that there are 186,400 and they were to camp on the east side. But that really means that they couldn't camp anywhere other than directly east. However wide the, the area of the priests around the tabernacle was, that was the, the width of their camp. And then they'd have to move out, camping out uh, from that point. So they really couldn't camp southeast of that point. So again, the camp of Judah was east, Reuben was south. Uh, so strict obedience would deny either of them in the area of being southeast of that. OK, if that makes sense, they have to move out their camps away from the tabernacle, depending upon the numbers that were camped in their groups. Only the cardinal directions were ordained here. And so, again, as I said, it's the width of the Levite camp that would dictate uh, how wide their camp could be. But obviously the length of it would depend upon how many were camping. So when we look at this, Judah, we're told, uh, if you go through in Numbers 2 and look at all the numbers that are listed there, 186,400, uh, the tribe of Reuben, if you look at their camp going out uh, on their side, 151,450, um, and so on. The camp of Ephraim is on the, the north, uh, sorry, the, uh, the other side, that's 108,100, and then the tribe of Dan going out, 157,600. So they're the numbers that we're given for the tribes and the way they would camp around the tabernacle and around the Levites that were in the center. So again, you have the numbers under the tribe of Judah. You'd have Issachar and Zebulun. They would be grouped together in this group of three. Judah would have its own standard, if you like, or own uh, sign. You know, typically when the Romans marched, they'd have a flag with a, a standard on it. Uh, you know, uh, the tribe of Judah had their own standard, as did Reuben and grouped with Reuben with Simeon and Gad. Ephraim were grouped with them, Manasseh and Benjamin. They'd have their own standard too. And then Dan, uh, Asher and Natalie. So these four groups, as it were, are all camped around the tabernacle. So what is it we see when we look from the air? Well, that's what Balaam and Balak would have seen as they looked down on the camp of Israel. It's staggering. It's even more incredible when you look at the details because the tribe for Judah... Oh, the tribe of Judah, uh, their standard was a lion. That was typically on their flag, as it were, that they would have had as they marched in their camps and so on. Um, Reuben, their standard was an ox. 
Ephraim was a man and Dan and the group with Dan had the, the stand of an eagle. Now, the incredible thing, again, that you see there is that the four faces of the cherubim, as in uh, Ezekiel, as in Revelation and so on, we see the ox, the man, the eagle and the lion, all speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, the names as well, that Judah, the name means praise. You're probably familiar with that. Dan means judged. Um, Daniel means God is my judge. That's what the name Daniel means. Uh, Ephraim means fruitful and Reuben means affliction. And every one of those is applicable to Jesus, of course. Uh, Jesus indeed is to be praised, but he was afflicted. He was fruitful through his sufferings. Of course, he was judged by being on the cross and bearing our sins. So I just share that with you. That's what Balak and Balaam would have seen. I mean, why this didn't change Balaam completely, I don't know. As he looked down, he saw this. He must have realized God's blessing was upon these people. Um, but there we are. Uh, just as another aside as well, we see that same picture in the Gospels, that Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents Jesus as a servant, which is typically that beast of burden, an ox. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. Of course, the, uh, the standard for Reuben was a man. And then John presents Jesus as the son of God, uh, that eagle soaring above. So I'll just share with you because uh, it's fascinating. You see the design in scripture. But let's get back into the second Peter to round out the chapter. So carrying on with these individuals, speaking of the likes of Balaam, just seeking after reward. It says these are wells without water. I mean, can you imagine being in a desert? being thirsty, seeing a well, running up to it, only to find that there's no water in it. How disappointing it is. Well, that's exactly what these individuals that Peter's speaking of are like. Clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the midst uh, the mist of darkness is reserved forever. So they're clouds that don't rain. They're just blown off with the wind. They don't actually release any rain. Again, in that kind of climate, you you want those clouds to bring rain. And it speaks of that darkness. Uh, it's the same analogy, by the way, used by Jeremiah in his warnings to Jerusalem before the Babylonian captivity. In Jeremiah 2, verse 12, 13, we read this. Be astonished. Just think about the wording here. Be astonished, O you heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid. Be you very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. All right. So the first thing is this rejection of authority, just as Peter's saying. And the second, they've hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they promise something that they don't deliver. It's exactly what we see so much of in the church today, small c there. You know, not, not the body of Christ, but in the, the church, particularly as the world sees it. There is so much there uh, where there's a promise of something spiritual, but it doesn't deliver. And uh, we've talked about these in detail in the past. Again, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest to whom the uh, mist of darkness is reserved forever. And just think of the contrast that the eternal Jerusalem is going to be full of light. It won't be the sun because the Lamb of God will be the light. In contrast, eternity apart from God will be dark physically and spiritually. And it's that spiritual darkness that neither you or I have any capacity to understand. The only one that knows what that is like is Jesus on the cross. When Jesus was suffering, when he uh, got to the point that the weight of the sin of the world was laid upon him, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus 
to this point is the only person, the only individual who has ever been separated, truly separated from God. Psalm 139 tells us that even now in Hades, the presence of God is felt. In Sheol, in the pit, in what we tend to think of as hell, for now, the presence of God can be felt. In the lake of fire, the eternal hell, God's presence will not be there. Now that is something we can't comprehend. I've used this analogy before, um, but it just kind of just grabs, uh, hopefully just kind of a picture in your mind. Some years ago, we were up in Kent with, uh, with Matt and Abby, um, Matt, the, the pastor of Calvary Mayston. And, um, and we were at a, a, a farm. They had lots of animals around and we, we were just looking at some of the rabbits and things. And we'd moved on as a group. Marla was still looking at one of the, the rabbits or something. And we'd started to walk away. Now I, I could see her clearly, but as the rest of the group moved behind some other building or something, she lost sight of us and all of a sudden, she looked up and realized she couldn't see us. I don't know whether she remembers this to this day, but I remember distinctly the look of fear and panic on her face. Now, immediately, because I was keeping an eye on her, I immediately went over to her and I you know, brought her back to us. But just imagine being in a position where suddenly you realize that you are cut off from God. That's what hell is really like. People joke about hell. They, they speak of these things. They don't know anything of what hell really is. People joke about, oh, I'll go to hell. I'll be with my friends. It's not going to be like that. The horror of hell is that you will be separated from the presence of God. And I don't think anybody can understand what that's like. As I say, Jesus is the only one. And that's why he cries out on the cross on, a, on the account of our sin, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God has to turn his face away because of the iniquity that Jesus bore there, carrying our sin. We'll read on verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, all oh, these people will sound good. They will sound very convincing in the things they say. They, they will be very persuasive and, and encourage people to follow after them in their rejection of authority, in their accepting whatever is popular, whatever is politically correct, just so that they, in a sense, gain more popularity. They seem to be more uh, in tune with society. Yeah, there's a lot of this going on in the church, how the the uh, the walls are, are coming down in a sense. And we, uh, we can be tolerant of everybody. We can accept this and we can tolerate that. And it's OK, you know, and, and God loves everybody. All these kind of insidious things that are being pushed forward. Again, they'll speak great swelling words of vanity. They allure through the lusts of the flesh. Don't think this is just speaking of sexual things. Of course, that is implied. We've seen that already alluded to. But the lusts of the flesh can be in all sorts of things. You know, it's just that the way that the natural life craves after certain things. You know, even reward and recognition. People like to be rewarded. They like to be recognized. They like to be part of something. That is just as much a lust of the flesh as anything else is. You know, we need to understand that we are accepted in the beloved, that we are chosen by God. There is no greater acceptance than that. We have been made sons of God. We've been given this inheritance, which we didn't earn, but we've been given it. There is no greater reward than that. You know, as believers, we should have this great contentment. That's why Paul said he'd learn in all things to be content. You know, whether we're in this life we have a lot or we have a little, you know, it, it matters not. What matters is our relationship with God. There is nothing greater than that. 
That's why Paul said that he counted, you know, all the things of this life as rubbish. You know, all his past achievements, all the things he'd learned, you know, being uh, an esteemed Jew, seemingly a member of the Sanhedrin and all these things. Paul says it's just counted as rubbish compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. That's better than anything. But these go for the lust of the flesh. They love that position. They love being able to get what they want that makes them feel better. Again, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. So this is who they're alluring. They're alluring people who have come out of the world that are starting to follow after Jesus, but then get wrapped up in this thing. They kind of get dragged back into the world. Now, this is exactly what we find in Matthew 13 in the parables. We'll come to this in a second. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants, servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. People speak of being free. They speak of liberty. The only real freedom is found in obedience to Jesus Christ. He's our creator. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And the real freedom comes when we follow him, when we accept his rules and dictates for our lives, when we accept the things that he has given. And of course, the things the Lord gives us are not burdensome. They're not a challenge. It should be a joy to walk with the Lord. We don't find ourselves when we become Christians having a long list of things we can't do. What we find is we have a great list of things we can do and we want to reject the other things. Yeah, yeah, I said a few times recently about you know, my uh, personal um, situation in terms of starting to go into the gym and so on. What I did find, which I thought was really interesting, that my craving or desire for certain foods, you know, just started to disappear. And I found that was really interesting. It wasn't something I, I planned or thought, I wasn't expecting it. But, you know, typically I'd snack during the morning at work. And I, I found myself not wanting to. You know, it, it's incredible how, uh, you know, if somebody said, you can't have this, you can't have that. Naturally, we have this kind of like rebellious thing in our heads and minds. And, you know, well, I want it. If you're telling me I can't have it, I want to have it. But actually, when, when there's something else that becomes more dominant in our lives, those things become less appealing. That's a, not the best of examples, but hopefully you get the picture that when we are in love with Jesus, the things of this world lose their value. We sing the great hymn that we turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's not that we have to give up anything. It's the fact that we choose to put things aside that once held us. For if after they've escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now, to know of Jesus can bring about a temporary change in lifestyle. But to know Jesus brings about an eternal change. And there is a big difference between the two. You know, if we look in Matthew 13, just very quickly, Matthew 13 just gives us this really interesting picture of people who seemingly start on that right road. I'm just going to pick up from verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not. Now, this is all the, the condition is always the word of God. Of course, Christ is the word made flesh. But it says, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in the heart, which is received by the wayside. But he that receives the seed into stony places, the same as he that hears the word and anon with joy receives it. 
So they hear about Jesus. They hear about the way of righteousness. They kind of start to escape the pollutions in the world. They recognize this. Yet has he not root in himself, but endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, by and by he is offended. Okay, and then the, the last one, verse 22. He that received the seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. But then notice, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches is just what Peter's saying, that they get entangled as this allure for worldly things, as they're being encouraged by, by those that are saying, well, it's okay, you don't have to read the Bible, you don't have to do this, do it, and so on. And we're told it becomes unfruitful. Of course, the, the difference is the last of those soils that the seed is sown into. But he that received the seed into good ground is he that hears the word and understands it which also bears fruit and brings forth some 100, some 60, some 30. So Matthew's take on, in a sense, a similar thing here. <clears throat> for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Now, again, they're aware of it. They know of it. Then after they've known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. You know, really, this is very much to whom much is given, much is required. David Guzik in his commentary says, It is better for a person to have never known a thing about Jesus than to hear some truth, hold to it for a season, and then reject and later reject it. Greater revelation has a greater accountability. And of course, the other problem is that once people hear something about Jesus, and maybe they'll come to church for a few weeks and they're kind of interested and curious, but then they get pulled back into the things of the world. They start to harden their hearts. And they think, well, I've tried that. You know, th there's a number of false converts that you'll hear that will tell you, well, I, I tried going to church. I tried being a Christian. It didn't work for me. No, it it's impossible. You can't have a relationship with Jesus and it not work for you. That doesn't, that's just not impossible. That's just not possible. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and he is your Lord and Savior, you are changed. You know, the old is gone. The new has come. And then finally, the last verse, but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow, or the pig, that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. What's our conclusion to all of this? We should be a changed people. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, caught out of darkness to proclaim his marvellous light. Our attitudes and characters should be different from those in the world. So we don't take our lead from the world in the way it thinks and does. Uh, and the world and false prophets within the church despise and reject authority and are given over to covetousness. It's that kind of, if it makes you happy, if it feels good, do it kind of mindset. Many sincere believers get caught up in the way of the world through these religious deceivers. And of course, for false converts, people have never truly put their trust in Jesus. They get swept back into the world. And of course, it's worse for them than if they'd have not known to start with. But even a believer can get caught up in these things. And we need to pray for each other that we don't get deceived. You know, we need to remember where we've come from, the life that we once had before knowing Christ and what we now have. And remember what God has done for you. And then, of course, the conclusion to this is to remember what is coming? And as we move into the last chapter, uh, Lord willing, next week, we'll be talking about his coming. That is what we are looking for. That is our hope. That is the, the thing that is uh, or should be paramount in our minds in these days, that the Lord is coming back and we need to be getting ready for his return. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for being able to review these things, to be reminded, Lord, of the 
great hope that we have, but Lord, also that there is great temptation. There is great deception. And there are many who would love to see us walk away from this great faith that we have. There are many who would love to see us deceived and caught up again in the things of the world. Oh, Father, we pray you give us wisdom. Help us, Lord, not to make the mistake that Peter refers to here in this this chapter of those that despise authority. Lord, those who go after covetousness. Father, help us to have our eyes firmly fixed upon you that we would grow together in knowledge and in grace. We ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.